First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. And good morning. Take away from last night's mayoral debate live with you from Studio 2. I'm Dan Scanlon sitting in for Melissa Ross. This is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening, but don't just listen. Please give us a call if you've got anything that you'd like to say. 549-2937 is the number. Then later, the OneJacks Institute is dissolving its affiliation with the University of North Florida. But first this hour, all seven candidates for Jacksonville mayor showed up for a debate at Jacksonville University last night. Will Brown was following the debate for Jacksonville Today, and you can read his piece, Three Takeaways, from the Jacksonville mayoral debate at jackstoday.org. He joins us now to walk us through the debate, and good morning, colleague. Good morning. Um, I guess the obvious question is, who are these seven people, and uh, do you think anybody watched? Well, I hope people watched uh, because not enough people voted uh, in local elections and, frankly, not enough people participated in the municipal process. So I hope people voted so that people will go out to the polls on March 21st. But I digress. Uh, the, the seven candidates are, you know, people like Donna Deegan, a former television uh, reporter and anchor. Uh, you know, there's Frank Kiesler. He is a, he, he's a, in real estate. Uh Keesler and Deegan are two people who have multiple generations of their family here in Jacksonville. There's Audrey Gibson. She's a former uh, state legis- state legislator in both the House and the Senate. She is the daughter of two former uh, school teachers. Uh, excuse me, two more former educators. Uh, Daniel Davis is the CEO of the Jacksonville Chamber of Commerce. He touted his bona fides of growing up on the West Side, and and he said, and he immediately mentioned that he holds some of the same conservative values as a lot of the people in Jacksonville. Al Farrar, a local business owner, turned city council member, uh, really an everyman who was up there on the stage. Uh, Leanna Cumber, she is a transportation executive, been a teacher, been a lawyer. Uh, she's also a member of the city council. And then there's Omega Allen, a perennial candidate who uh, had a few zingers, uh, you know, mentioning that at the end that she's a long shot, but as is the case, when long shots hit, there's a big payout. Uh, and so her her perspective is even though she's polling at 1%, uh, she might be a long shot. But if a long shot hits, then everybody everybody's a winner, essentially. For those of you who didn't uh, watch it, it was on Channel 4. Ken Justice, one of their longtime journalists, uh, uh, was uh, the host. And the show was preceded by four advertisements for four of those candidates. And so it gave you a little look at what these people were, or at least in their own eyes, and then here was your chance to see and hear. And again, this was the first time, I believe, uh, that all of them were together televised and that uh, the general public had a chance. They didn't have to go and hang out at somebody's uh, nonprofit board meeting or or, uh, Lions Club or whatever. You know, and the amount of money that's been spent on this campaign was something that was discussed afterward. Uh, There's been upwards of... uh, multiple millions of dollars spent on television ads already. And we're still two weeks out from the March elections, let alone May. Uh, Donna Deegan was asked what she thought about some of the spending in terms of television ads. And, you know, I wanted to share what she had to say afterward uh, with people in, in the region. Honestly, I I think it wastes people's time. We've had, we've spent almost $4 million um, on attack ads in this campaign. Imagine what we could do with $4 million in this city. You know, you, you, you could you could fund health care initiatives. You could you could fund a, a piece of the Emerald Trail. Uh, you could help a lot of small businesses. I mean, it's just it's frustrating to me to see this money being spent to divide when we need more than anything in this city to unify. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you talk about the the attack ads and the ads in general. Uh, obviously, those who don't have a lot of money in the kitty, their ads, if they pop up at all, are going to pop up starting now. We're going to see a lot more for the mayor's campaign. And the question is, how are some of the other candidates going to handle these? Uh, I've noticed that the attack ads seem to be backing away. And uh, those who are leading, uh, at least in some polls, uh, their ads are becoming a little more point to point fact. And we did hear a lot of that last night. So give me some ideas. Uh, who was saying what last night? And and what did you think was the most interesting question? So if if the next mayor serves two terms, which I would presume they all think they will, um, that will run through the course of the lease of TIAA Bank Stadium. 
excuse me, to AAA Bank Field, uh, where the Jaguars play. The, the team's lease expires at the end of 2030. The team has made it expressly noted that they would like renovations of the stadium. Those renovations may cost hundreds of millions of dollars. How much? No one knows yet. Miami spent, I think, about $300 million to renovate its stadium. Tampa did about $160 million, but what, they're, what they were looking to do was less extensive of what Jacksonville is looking to do for, for the stadium here. All of them said that they would support public funding. None of them said they would use a property tax increase to support that initiative. Um, also, when it comes to infrastructure, that was probably the thing where they differed the most uh, in terms of how they would invest in infrastructure. Uh, you know, Cumber and Gibson both mentioned uh, that, that Jacksonville should really work with state and federal governments to try and get some additional dollars in addition to what we're doing um, it, with some of our infrastructure projects. Uh, Cumber definitely said that there are systems that need to be addressed. So let's, I wanted to share what she had to say as well. We need to reallocate our funds to potholes, to actually fixing the infrastructure, the lighting and so forth. And again, reprogramming the Skyway money. Nobody should be happy in this city that the city has decided to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on the Skyway, but we have all of these systems that need to be addressed. You know, potholes was a big, much used word last night. A crime actually showed up uh, briefly toward the end. I was amazed that it actually did get pushed that far into the show. Ken Justice also saying more than once, wow, look how the time has flown. It really did move quickly. Um, what about the crime issue? I mean, what were some of the, the thoughts that, that, considering that we have a murder right now, uh, that's once again seemingly climbing? The two uh, Democrats in the race, uh, Audrey Gibson and Donna Deegan, both mentioned that Poverty and lowering and or eradicating poverty is a way to reduce crime. Uh, Gibson mentions more than once uh, her background in criminology um, as her degree and and wanted to use that as a way to uh, wanted to use that as a way to kind of shore up how she thinks the crime issue could be resolved. Wanted to share what she had to say uh, during the debate. It's not an automatic bump up in budget. It's, it's very much planned and very much directed. I also work with the uh, gang reduction uh, strategy with the mayor and the uh, state, state attorney's office. I believe in prevention as well. So uh, in my talks with the sheriff as we craft his budget, then I would be looking at where we can do prevention and intervention in other places in the budget outside of just the uh, sheriff's office. I love the fact that that uh, Ken Justice was using questions from viewers, which I think on Channel Four, that's a great way to bring it right down uh, to the to the hometown folks. Um, anything else before I throw the last one at you? You, you know, um, <laughs> uh, I I think it was fascinating the the difference in when it came to how people would invest in the riverfront because Al Farrar made a great point that the river goes through the whole heart of the city. It's not just a downtown thing. And Ferrara was really big throughout the night of kind of focusing on his people-centered message and not just uh, people downtown or not just big business. Um, so I wanted to share what Ferrara had to say about how to activate the river and the impact of doing so. We have a really big river. So not just doing downtown is not good enough. We need to make it all over the city because we can't have everybody just going to one place. It needs to be divided out through the city. Interesting that Daniel Davis, as head of the chamber, talked about rooftops. And uh, to me, as, as a person who uses some rooftop restaurants and bars, that's what I'm thinking. But uh, someone brought up, possibly even you this morning, that to get to the rooftop, you got to have retail on the ground floor. That is a big part of it. Um, and, and Dave, you know, I think it was interesting. Of all the seven candidates, six of them spoke to uh, local media and answered the questions that we and the press were receiving from people throughout the community. The only one who didn't was Mr. Davis. Okay, I found most intriguing the last question. When you have your last day in office, uh, what do you hope you've accomplished? And I heard uh, direct responses uh, from only about 75% of the candidates. Well, that is it for talking about uh, a race that's coming up in just about, uh, what, uh, two weeks. Two so weeks. you can read more about last night's debate in today's edition of Jacksonville Today. That's at jackstoday.org, and we'll be back soon.
And we are back to First Coast Connect, and we're going to switch some topics here and talk about the One Jacks Institute. Uh, some of you may know it's an organization dedicated to diversity in the community, uh, separating, it is now separating from the University of North Florida uh, as the state tries to strip higher education of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. And I've had the honor of meeting Kyle Reese here, the executive director uh, in one recent uh, rather nasty uh, incident here in the city. But Kyle, let's just talk about this. First of all, I really, I hate to say it, 35 years a reporter here, I didn't really know you existed, maybe because I never had to work with you or there was never anything that came to the forefront. And then we had the issues of threats against the Jewish uh, population, uh, the the Nazi uh, propaganda thrown in the bags. And uh, there we were. In, in, in the plaza outside of City Hall uh, a few months ago uh, with massive interracial, interdenominational, intercommunity support for making sure that another group that has been so long maligned wrongly um, gets some help. So welcome, Kyle. Let's just give me, give me that history first of One Jacks and how you joined UNF. Well, Dan, thanks so much uh, for letting me be with you this morning. So we are 53 years old. Uh, our organization began in Jacksonville as the Jacksonville chapter of the National Conference of Christians and Jews. And so our roots are in interfaith work, and we continue uh, to do interfaith work in addition to other um, work to bring the community together. Uh, And so in 2005-2006, the National Conference of Christians and Jews, that national organization, it had changed a couple of times. It went away. And that's when One Jacks was born. Uh, and we were an independent 501c3 until 2012 when the University of North Florida approached us about becoming an institute there. I happened to be on the One Jacks board at that time, so was able to walk through uh, our affiliation with UNF. And we've had a wonderful 11 year run with the university. And uh, now, in order to uh, be able to continue our mission, uh, which is uh, civility, respect, and understanding in the community, uh, we feel like we need to do that as an independent 501c3. And, and I understand. I, the feeling I've always gotten at going to UNF is that it is a very inclusive, involved, multi-level uh, population. Uh, anyone who is anything can be there and and work toward a higher education. Um very comforting to be there. I guess maybe that's memories of my old college days too in New York City. But as a New York City kid, I remember growing up in a melting pot community where it was the 60s and 70s. There were no blacks, but there was every other race. I had a neighbor who actually had the tattoo of a concentration camp on her arm. She had been there in Nazi Germany. I had Irish, Spanish, Italians, Jewish, all around me, a Chinese gentleman next to me who published a newspaper in Chinatown. Um, and my high school was fairly integrated considering, again, 1970s New York. Uh, so to come here and find an organization like UNF, an organization like One Jacks, to see a campus where the president and the head of diversity are such intriguing people, and to see that there is a lot of multi-fluency uh, of gen- of generations of ethnicities there is wonderful. When did the thinking start that maybe one Jack should get out from underneath the umbrella or 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 uh, operation of a state university? And I underline state. Sure. Well, I, I think part of it is the the pending legislation, not only what eventually will pass, but the anticipation of what will pass sort of trickles down to the university. And so for us, a few months ago, we wanted to uh, do a couple of initiatives. One, uh, about around civil discourse and the mayoral race, uh, and then also a celebration of the diversity of our community. And we were unable to do that uh, completely. And so that's when we began to think, okay, how can we best fulfill our mission? And why were you not able to do that completely, uh, if you choose to tell me? Because I think there is an anticipation and fear of the legislation that will pass. And so anticipating that that's coming, you begin to step back and um, try to uh, not do anything that's going to speak against where the legislation you think is going. And yet for the past 11 years, you've been in a place where things that were proposed, things that were inclusive, things that were 
made to bring people together on campus in the sunshine, on the grass, and talk about things uh, seem to be A-OK to do. And now you're seeing a, a dark cloud, maybe, maybe not, but you're concerned. Well, I think, first of all, let me just say that I sit here this morning with nothing but gratitude for the University of North Florida. I knew the kind of uh, organization we were when we went to UNF and became an institute. Uh, they solidified our mission. They expanded our work. And so I'm incredibly grateful for all that UNF has done for us. Uh, but again, our mission uh, is going to be best accomplished if we are free to do what we, what our board of directors feel is important. Hey, we want you guys out there to come in on this conversation. So give us a call at uh, 549-2937. That's 549-2937. I, I guess the next question is, um, how will this impact your work? I mean, first of all, where does One Jacks go or is One Jacks uh, working from home a lot of times? So, well, uh, that's a great question. So we have a lot of options uh, in the community. We are uh, right now housed uh, in the UNF office space in the Barnett Building in downtown Jacksonville, and we've been uh, extraordinarily fortunate to be there. One of the things that was, I think, uh, important when we went to the University of North Florida is that we would always be responsible for raising our own budget. So our fundraising has kept us afloat for all these years. And so we don't anticipate a lot of change, obviously, in that area. We, this community is generous, and we feel like, uh, as an organization, we embody what this community wants to be. So we're so thankful for our donors. We'll continue to ask them to support us. But we will be taking on extra expenses as we now have to pay for office space, other infrastructure support. And you talk about generous. Refresh my memory. When we met at the old Hemming Plaza that night uh, for the support rally, uh, the, the big bombshell was the donation made by who for what? Yes, so we are uh, we uh, benefited from the uh, generosity of David and Monique Miller. Uh, the Together Strong Fund was a gift uh, that they gave uh, to uh, the Jacksonville Jewish community, to the Federation, and a portion of that will go to us so that we can further our, our student work. So that's the perfect stepping stone. What are the programs? What are you doing and offering now and what will move with you and maybe expand now that you can feel a little freer to do it? Sure. So we began, we uh, have an extensive uh, youth program in middle school and high school. Uh, we teach diversity education. We have a signature uh, summer uh, camp program called the Sandy Miller Metrotown Institute. Uh, and then we do Sandy Miller Metro Town in a day. And that's when a, a group or a campus will call us in and we'll just allow them to do what our tagline says, be different together and celebrate the uniqueness of each student and realize uh, the, the common uh, threads that uh, call them together in whatever campus they're in. But what you just mentioned sounds like it might run, it might send up a flag uh, that a state law either pending or on the books now about diversity education, they might want to talk to you about it, the state level. Uh, does leaving that UNF umbrella allow you to continue doing these programs on some of these issues without any warning from the state? I think so. I think that uh, one of the things that really caught my attention in the pending legislation is that no state money, student fees, or philanthropic dollars can be used for DEI work. And if that, in fact, passes, obviously all of our funds are from donors. Uh, so, again, it uh, we have been very grateful for the 11 years, but it's time for us in order to truly fulfill our mission to be an independent organization. And you talk about anti-DEI uh, legislation. Uh, I can't... I here I am on Monday driving to do something else and I'm listening on NPR and they're discussing Florida and all the new anti-DEI legislation that is being filed. Uh, any thoughts on what's now uh, on the back burner, what's now starting to go through committees as the session begins? Well, I think anything that I would say would be speculation. I just hope that all of our legislatures, who, legislators, whoever, whomever they may be, remember that these have real world consequences in people's lives. Yeah, and the real world we keep on hearing about is is uh, the mental anguish of, of a young man or woman uh, who's having some transitional issues or uh, questioning what path in life they should take. And uh, One Jack's obviously 
and be a place to learn more about that. Well, and, and, and not only the students, which are obviously paramount, but just the wonderful colleagues that we have at UNF in the Office of Diversity Initiatives and the, the work that they do to make sure that every student thrives on that campus. There's a lot of anguish and uncertainty with them as well. You know, it's interesting. I, I did read your news release from yesterday, and what I noted uh, was that the president of the university did have a, a nice statement that we will part as friends, uh, which is a rare to see in a news release that basically says, hey, we're leaving by. Um, how do you feel about the fact that, that you did get that, that support from well, him? Well, we're, we're grateful and uh, uh, wish uh, the university and uh, Dr. Lamayam the best. Okay. Um, here you talk about raising your own funds. Right. Here you talk about the fact that you're going to have to now put a roof over your own head. Yes. So here's your chance to say, hey, folks who aren't calling me at 549-2937, incidentally, give me a yell here. Um, what do you want the people of Jacksonville and Northeast Florida to do to help? Well, we are in the midst of uh, preparing for our annual humanitarian awards. Every year we uh, gather together and we celebrate uh, wonderful humanitarians in the city. Uh, we will do that on May 4th. And a way that you can support our work while also supporting this event is to go to onejacks.org and you'll find a, a donate button there. Um, I think it's very important and, the, and this is much bigger than just one Jacks. It's the work that we do as an organization. I think that this is a time for the Jacksonville community when we can really say, this is the kind of community we want to create. And one Jacks is one of many organizations in this community that can help facilitate that. So I hope we need support. We want support. We, we do have to have a roof over our head. But I hope it's a very, very big, generous, symbolic gesture to say, One Jacks, other organizations, keep doing what you're doing because this is the kind of community we want. You know, we've got a tweet right here that says, it is sad that diversity, equity, and inclusion are under attack, yet the leaders of Florida are slow to condemn anti-Semitic rhetoric and displays of hate. Well, we know that for sure. Um, and it's happened elsewhere in the state because it's happened here. Uh, the projections of the uh, the uh, swastikas, uh, the statements that were projected on the uh, stadium and a downtown building or two. And um, we were waiting with bated breath, some of them like Monster Jam. We were waiting to hear since that Saturday was, what was the day? Uh, official hate day or something. We were waiting to hear something happen. Um, nothing appeared to happen. Did you hear of anything that happened? I did not, but in, in having conversations around the community, I know that these symbols of hate, um, Jacksonville is not chosen by happenstance. There are those outside groups who believe that what they do in this city could take root and they could find uh, some help and friendship here. And we've just got to stand against that, whatever the form, however long the symbol of hate has existed. Again, as a New York City kid, I grew up in an area that was heavily Jewish. I went to synagogues for bar mitzvahs and weddings. Uh, I know that in the South Side in Mandarin, there is a large presence of synagogues and, and, and uh, Jewish centers and uh, the Jewish Community uh, Alliance and many other organizations. And they're getting hammered sometimes by these little Ziploc bags with, with, the, with the, the statements in them. And, but that's low tech. The higher tech is that projection on the side of the CSX building. Uh, that um, amazed me because to me, you have to stop, set up a tripod, aim it, and then you have to be there for a certain period of time to make sure it stays put and gets seen. So you are open to someone walking by and taking offense and taking offense on you. So that takes a lot of you-know-what to do that. Right, it does. And and hate has has been with us, uh, and, and we just have to make sure that we not only react to the present expressions of hate, but that we're standing in solidarity with all the groups in our community that experience hate on a regular basis. We've got another tweet here. Um, can, uh, do you know of any other organizations like the Interfaith Center at UNF uh, that could be in jeopardy? And I don't know if that's per se the case, but uh, one would think that um, that's diversity that maybe 
may fall under scrutiny. I, I think it's, again, anything I would say is speculation as the, uh, as the legislation is still pending. But I do think all diversity organizations on campus, the Interfaith Center being one of them, everyone's paying attention to see how this goes and determine what is the best way uh, to move forward. And so we're having conversations with other organizations in the community to make sure that this work goes on. How can you prevent some of this? I always see it falling underneath that phrase, free speech. Um, the fact that there was nothing defaced on a building when those projections were there because they're, uh, they're transient, they're molecules. Uh, there's, there is legislation in the city now that will prevent you from doing that, but it's, it's not graffiti. You don't have to go back there and paint it over. How can we prevent some of these uh, that could be seen as free speech? Well, I think the best way is uh, that uh, we are not flat-footed in our response, but also that we're doing proactive work like we do, like other groups in the community, 90Forward, uh, other uh, uh, community groups, that we invest in these organizations. And so the, the city that we want to be and the work that we're doing is so much louder than the, the whisper of hate speech that may come up from time to time. We've got uh, Tom from the West Side with a comment. Tom, good morning. What's on your mind? Ah, yes. Good morning, Hugh, too. And I was just saying, I'll go out and say it. It's the Confederate monuments that are drawing this uh, hatred to Jacksonville. And it's time we did something about it. I think we need to remove them all and move the city forward. Uh, Richmond, the former heart of the Confederacy, has removed all their monuments. And another thing I think that is telling is that NPR was able to find these people that are projecting these images, and JSO hasn't been able to find them. All right. Thank you very much. Well, again, these images are transient. It's difficult. Um, if you know anything about the geography around the CSX building, where that was done was in a very dark cul-de-sac of, of the, uh, the center there. Um, they could do it and be gone, and it was sheer luck, I guess, that anybody even got an image of it. I think if you're doing the projection on the side of the uh, scoreboard uh, among a crowd of thousands after that game, I think that's maybe a little more scary for the person doing it. But again, they're in a the crowd. Maybe there wasn't a police officer nearby. And at the time, who knows what anyone would have seen. You either saw the message or you saw the messenger. Maybe you didn't connect the two. Um, we, we've got uh, uh, one person here, uh, Martha, on uh, tweeting uh, says, uh, just thank you for talking about anti-Semitism. Again, something that I grew up with hearing about vividly from my neighbors, the Rosenbaums, um, and then came here expecting not to have to deal with it in, in the Southeast, and uh, it has reared its head. People forget that we had a synagogue in Jacksonville where a bomb was found mm -hmm. inside as a an Israeli official was going to come visit. Um, that is beyond scary to me. That's 9-11 stuff. Sure. And, and I think Tom's point is well taken. We we have to do a deep dive in all symbols of hate, whether it was last week or if it was 50 years ago, and to talk through as a community, what are we going to do about that to move forward and make sure that everybody feels welcome? Well, we have a regular to this show on the line. Good morning, Hope McMath. What do you have to say? Good morning. Um, I just wanted to um, first give some words of gratitude to Kyle for taking such a strong and really courageous leadership role on this. Um, people like him and uh, Kim Allen, who leads 90 Forward, and Colleen Rodriguez at Jewish Family Community Services are all really standing, I think, in that difficult space of knowing what it looks like to be doing the right thing and the needed thing even when the forces against that work are really intense. Um, I do a lot of Holocaust education, and actually yes, yesterday I was with second- and third-gen Holocaust survivors all day at Mandarin High School, and students are looking to us to see how we are going to respond to these things, and not just in the moment, but in a more strategic way. So whether the hate is being wielded against our transgender neighbors or our Jewish neighbors, or our Black neighbors, or those who are immigrants, it's just really critical that people not turn away or approach it from a fearful stance. So, Kyle, I just appreciate what you're doing. I'm sorry you're having to do it, but I actually think it is a, a brilliant and important move for the community. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Hope. Yes, yes, I see Hope a lot at a lot of events, and I've known her since her days at the Comer, so uh, that is nice to see. Um, you know, it's interesting. That was nice to hear that these programs are still going on in the Duval County school system. Right. That means these young men and women are learning that diversity and learning of history. You know, my favorite joke is I never even knew that we had Fort Caroline or that the Spanish were here. To me, in the Northeast, it was Pilgrim Rock. That's where America started. Wrong. This is where America started, and maybe this is where America, some say, should con- could should continue to be what we believe it should be. Well, and I'm, I'm thank you, Hope, for your uh, call and your kind words. We need honest storytellers like Hope and others who will say, this is what we can celebrate. This is where we were really bad, and let's learn from that and move forward for everyone to benefit in our community. Let me take one more call here from Charles on the West Side. Charles, good morning. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Kyle. You know, uh, what alarms me, I mean, I, I understand that you don't want to speculate about the laws that may be coming down the pike, but what I find really frightening is uh, where they mentioned uh, philanthropic uh, organizations funding DEI. You know, it's oddly uh, like a template that Putin has already laid down and Orban where the, you know, they start attacking civil society and wiping out them and going after the press next, which they've already done with this latest uh, proposal about, you know, registering as a blogger and a journalist and whatnot and get on a registry. So, yeah, it's pretty frightening. Uh, but I can see you guys increasingly coming under more attacks. So hang in there, man. All right. Thank you, Charles. Well, I think we should wrap up here, but obviously for more information on one Jacks, it's real simple. One Jacks.org. Um, you've been at it for years. Uh, so any final thoughts just, uh, for the next six months ahead? Well, I just think, uh, I want to say thank you to the community for your support. We feel, feel that and know that the community is going to step up. Uh, but remember, uh, that while we are able to walk away and reactivate our 501c3, there are students and staff members at UNF that can't do that. And we need to continue to remember them and support them. Wow. Thank you very much. Well, much more still ahead later in the hour, a look at the players championship, which is underway right now but up next march's surrogacy awareness month we'll take a closer look at this family building method which is becoming more and more common and we'll be right back And welcome back. March is Surrogacy Awareness Month, an opportunity to celebrate and recognize the incredible women who generously offer their time and bodies to help build families. It's also meant to help normalize the conversation around surrogacy as this method of family building becomes more commonplace thanks to advances in science. So our guest today is Courtney Johnson, a local surrogacy and assisted reproduction attorney, now here for a closer for a closer look. I'm adopted. Our son is adopted. That's the way I always thought to do it. Um, But obviously surrogacy is an option. So surrogacy, Northeast Florida, tell me, what is it? How do you do it? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. And adoption is a beautiful way to build families and certainly, um, you know, something that has been done for quite a while. Surrogacy is newer with the advances in Um, science and medicine that we have now. Uh, So March is Surrogacy Awareness Month, and it's especially fitting for me because my son was born. Um, We used a surrogate to have my son, and he was born in March. It's his birthday in just a couple of days, so he will be three. Um, So that's why it's especially uh, meaningful to me that that's what March is, that we're celebrating. And you survived the terrible twos. That's wonderful. I, are we getting into three-nager, though? Because I, I, I don't know if we're past the terrible twos. Wait till they're 27. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but without getting too personal, why 
does someone, dumb question, why does someone need to go through surrogacy? Is adoption, which for my wife and I was 27 years ago, is it that difficult? Is it that expensive? Is this easier? Is this less gut-wrenching? You tell me. Uh, well, as far as whether it's easier or less gut-wrenching, I would say probably definitely not. There's lots of reasons why someone uh, might need to use a surrogate. And kind of um, an umbrella in that is also uh, assisted reproduction. So you might hear about people going through in vitro fertilization. There's also, you know, it's 2023. There's lots of different ways to build families. And some people might not need a surrogate, but they might need an egg donor or a sperm donor. And so there's there's certainly lots of ways to uh, build families. As far as for why someone might need a surrogate, um, if it's a heterosexual couple, maybe the woman has um, anatomical uh, problems or other health concerns that make carrying a baby either impossible or dangerous for her health. Um, you know, same-sex male couples, they obviously need a surrogate to carry a baby for them. And so there's um, women that have had had cancer or have had to have their reproductive organs removed for whatever reason, they might also need a surrogate. And so um, using a surrogate can allow uh, hopeful parents to have a, a biological child or, or even a, a child through through donor conception as well. For you, you want to share as to the reason why you have an almost three-year-old? <laughs> um, sure. I mean, without getting into the science and the my medical uh, stuff. So my husband and I um, had a, a six-year journey to try to have our son, and um, we had lots of losses and miscarriages, and it was a really, really heartbreaking time. And um, our doctor that we were using just recommended that we go ahead and move forward with um, with using a surrogate. Now, are there different kinds of surrogacy? I remember that during our adoption process, uh, uh, there was one meeting, maybe two, with uh, the birth mother. Um, there was uh, different opinions on what to continue the relationship or whether to. Uh, so you tell me, what are the different kinds of surrogacy and how do they how do they get managed? Sure. So what most people are doing in the United States in 2023, it's called gestational surrogacy. And that is where the surrogate is not related to the baby that she's carrying. It's either the um, the baby is the genetics of the... It's When you are the parents going through a surrogacy, you're called the intended parents. That's the legal phrase, which I hated that when I was going through it. I was like, I'm this child's mother, but um, you're called the intended parents. And so the surrogate is carrying a baby that's either related to the intended parents or that um, the intended parents may have had to use a donor. So, Oh, we've heard of mothers help uh, being the surrogate for their for their daughters. For sisters being the surrogate, um, I don't know if that's good or bad. That's just, just thinking soap opera right now. Oh, I think that's a wonderful gift. And if you're if you're if you have a family member or a close friend that could step in and be your surrogate for you, um, there's a lot that goes into it from the surrogate's perspective as far as what their body has to go through. And it's important for all the parties that get into these type of arrangements to certainly know what they're getting into from a medical, emotional, physical standpoint. And um, that's why there's a practice of law in this area. So let me guess, there's a, there's a brochure you give the surrogate mother that says, <laughs> welcome to the roller coaster? <laughs> uh, not quite. Because, I mean, it's, I remember, my wife remembers well, the toughness. And I won't get into anything more, but let's just say there was some ma major sorrow and then the joy. Um, but it's still tough. And there's that three months, that six months after and all that and other issues. What are the issues that could affect, haunt the surrogate as well as the parents? Well, the when you talk about the three to six months, is that when you mean the waiting period for an adoption to right. be finalized? And then sitting before you can sit down with the judge who incidentally had our son in his lap during that paperwork. <laughs> that was rather fun because um, I knew the judge. He was a, a former state attorney, but... Um, there's there's nerves. There's a lot of nerves going on here. For, and, and, and I'm sure for the mother who actually carried the child. So tell me, what are some of the concerns, issues, uh, or um, do they sort of evaporate? Sure. So surrogacy is different than adoption in that when that child is born, the, the parents of that child, uh, their names go on the birth certificate. Okay. And then we go to a, 
very expedited court process and um, obtain a, an order showing that those are the parents. So it's not that, that, you know, one of the myths about surrogacy is that the surrogate wants to keep the baby or that the surrogate's going to run away with the baby. Like I said, soap opera, yeah. I can assure you the women that get into surrogacy, first of all, you have to have already had your own children or child and you have to be raising them. So you've ha- you have to have easy pregnancies and not have any health problems. They do not want to keep your child. Our surrogate, uh, loves, you know, FaceTiming with our son and seeing pictures of him. She did. She had no desire to raise him. She has her own beautiful family. Um, and so there, you don't get into that in surrogacy. They're, all of the parties go into it. Um, as it's, They have a meeting of the minds as far as there's an, a, a contract that they need to enter into, and everyone knows um, what they're getting into. So there's no, there's none of those risks that are, that you're familiar with in adoption. Okay. So you're an attorney. Let me throw out uh, the question about facts or figures here. Um, X percent natural birth between couple X percent adoptions. How many percentage of, of children on an annual basis are surrogates right now, maybe versus 10 years ago? So actually the most recent statistic that I found was from 2015 that was documented and it had about 3000 as the number of children that were born via surrogacy. I would expect that number is probably closer to maybe 5000 a year now. Um but you know one in 8 couples in the United States struggle with infertility. So uh and surrogacy is of course perhaps on the extreme end of the spectrum as far as medical intervention that people might need to have a have a family. But, you know, with one in eight, there's certainly someone that, you know, either a neighbor or an extended family uh, member or, or a coworker at work. There's people that, you know, in your life that are that are struggling with with trying to have a baby. And that's that's extremely stressful. And um, I can having gone through that personally, I can certainly empathize 100 percent with with my clients as far as what they're going through medically and emotionally and financially. And, um, you know, just love getting to work with people to help create their dreams. But that's infinitesimal. How many children are born every day? And you're talking only three, four, five thousand that are surrogacy. So I guess here we are at National Surrogacy Month. What's the message out there? Um, hey, we want more of you to help. We want more of you to consider. Well, what's the, the message? Because three, four, five thousand children through surrogates is is nothing. That's You say there could be many potential, but I foresee that I don't know anyone right now who is going through this. Well, to give you an example, there's um, probably 45 two-year-olds at my son's school, and two of them were um, born with a surrogate. So um, I think it's probably more common than we think. And uh, the, the point of Surrogacy Awareness Month is really to just bring awareness to and to help normalize different that it's 2023 and families are built in all kinds of different ways. And it's um, really just meant to normalize the conversation. You know, if you had asked me when we were told that we needed to use a surrogate, if I would have shared this with the radio or the internet, I would have said absolutely not. But having gone through that, it's really opened my eyes to the need to normalize the conversation and, and help people understand that there's lots of beautiful different ways to build families. So in the minute we have left, who should call who? Who should do what? Is there a website for Florida? Is there a website for Northeast Florida? You tell me what. Sure. Well, my website, at my, I practice law at Marks Gray. So our website is marksgray.com. And um, any parties that are going through this need an attorney just to make sure that everyone is fully represented. So the surrogate would have her own attorney. The intended parent or parents have their own attorney. If you're also needing to um, use an egg donor or sperm donor or any, anything like that, you also need an attorney. It's just to make sure that the um, child's interests are taken care of and that everyone, the intentions are correct as far as who's going to be the child's parent. All right. Surrogacy. I've said that correctly all the times <laughs> I've said have. it. National Surrogacy Month. Thank you very much. We'll be back with some TPC stuff right after this from our friends at NPR. Dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com. A look at Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. 
I'm Dr. Joe Servin. Join me Saturday at 4 for what's health got to do with it, only on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. The District of Columbia is a city. It's got a mayor, a city council, it's got subways and buses and restaurants and bars, museums and parks and bike lanes and dogs. But despite all that, D.C. is baby. Congress is daddy. And Congress has been reminding D.C. of its status lately. That story, next time on Today Explained. Tonight at 6.30, here on WJCT News 89.9. Next time on The World, we're in India, where an epic Hindu poem, hundreds of years old, is causing controversy. Some politicians say it's derogatory towards women and towards people at the bottom of India's caste system. With elections next year, candidates left and right are accusing each other of using the sacred text to divide voters along caste lines. That story on The World. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. For more than a year, Ukraine has stood up to Russia's relentless barrage of bombs and drone attacks. But those tracking cyber threats say Moscow's hackers are primed to unleash a new and frightening phase of cyber warfare. It's based on intelligence seen by Dina Temple-Raston, a reporter who spent years exploring the shadowy world of ransomware, disinformation, and cyber ops. She joins us next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Do you hear that? It's the crowd. The crowd at the Tournament Players Championship. It has begun. Now, we might have a little rain tomorrow, but that will just make it more interesting on Saturday and Sunday. The Players Championship now in full swing, so we've asked Miranda Rossum with the tournament to share some details on what fans can expect as they head out to TPC over the next few days. So, Miranda, what's it like on this uh, slightly cloudy Thursday morning? Here is buzzing. We just had a hole in one about 30 minutes ago on 17. So I would say spirits are high. It's not too hot. People are just having a good time. You know, I am going to be the heinous, horrible person and say I have never been to a tournament players championship. I've done live uh-huh. traffic reports on Butler Boulevard and A1A. <laughs> I have been at the facility for some of the events. I've been to car shows there. So what am I missing? Well, so I think that the TPC Sawgrass experience at Players Championship is probably one of the best displays of what Northeast Florida has to offer. Of course, the you know the golf course is beautiful. The scenes are lush. But I think that something that people forget about is that unlike going to a game at an arena or a stadium is we have all of our local restaurants come out. So we have over 30 local restaurants on the course. So you can sort of eat your way around Jacksonville um, as you are enjoying some world-class <laughs> golf. Yeah, it's awesome. I had main, I had Cousins Maine Lobster for lunch yesterday, followed it up with some mini bar donuts, and then washed it all down with, um, I had dessert from, uh, I had more donuts. So yeah, it's <laughs> just, just amazing. <laughs> Uh, you know, that, that it's true. It, it, the TPC, especially with the re-sculpting of the platform, the property, I was out there for a, a Ponte Vedra Auto Show meeting some years ago, and uh, the guy in charge was talking so highly about how the experience would change, the, the, the visual would change as you drove in or walked into it. So what am I seeing if I walk to the clubhouse, if I look to the right uh, at the sculptured gardens? What do I see? Well, so you're going to see flags from all around the world offering, you know, showcasing our, you know, diverse talent that's over here on the golf course. But you're also going to see all these fans that are descending upon Northeast Florida to watch this golf course. And what's great about this is, you know, it's amazing for the local economy. Over 61% of our uh, ticket holders are actually coming from outside the 150-mile radius of Jacksonville. And you're going to see some beautiful landscape, obviously. You're going to see the island green, which is uh, number 17, the hole, which is the most photographed hole in all of golf. So definitely want to go check that out, cross that off the bucket list. All right. Let's talk about some of the the, the things that you can do or get there. You've talked about some of the food. Um, (laughs) 200,000 fans. Uh, what else uh, can these eager folks with their credit cards uh, bring home with them? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have probably the most amazing merch tent in all of sports. It's over 40,000 square feet, and it's not just golf clothes. It's We have Lululemon. We have Lily Pulitzer. We have um, Grayson Golf. And then now we're working with Barstool Sports, and we're doing an exclusive line. If you're a gym junkie, we have an exclusive line with Noble for their shoes. So just anything you can think of, we have it in there. If you have a favorite brand, we have probably done a, a collaboration with them and there's no shortage of hats here at the PC Sawgrass. I can promise you that. You know, and then for fam. Oh, sorry. No, no, go on, please. And then you know, if you're looking for you know family friend friendly sort of activities, we have our Nemours Kids Zone as well as our Baptist Family Lounge, and those are both free to the public. And uh, we also have our 17th Hold Challenge, which is also free, which is a replica of our iconic Island Green, where people can take a stab and try to be. Uh, like the pros, and we are also new this year. We have our PGA Tour training experience presented by Noble, Hyperice, and Whoop, which sort of gives fans an immersive experience to see just all that goes into the athletic training for a professional golfer. We we can't forget that there's charities associated with this event. So tell me about some charities of the days as we get towards wrapping this up. Sure, yeah. So we have today, our charity of the day is Edward Waters the women's golf program, which is a new program that the players actually helped uh, bring back in 2020. So we're really proud to highlight these amazing uh, collegiate athletes and the great work that these women are doing. Um, Friday, we will be highlighting um, Active Minds, which is a mental health organization here in Northeast Florida. Saturday, we'll be highlighting the more children's health. And then on Sunday, we'll be highlighting First Tee Northeast Florida. Well, thanks, Miranda. But I want to tell the listeners, we've got a prize pack featuring merch and a dining gift card. So to enter, email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org and put players in the subject. David Luckin is our executive producer, senior producer, Heather Schatz. Our producer, Bridget O'Brien. Our director, the Isabella De Silva with technical help from Morning Edition host Michelle Corman. If you got questions or comments, give us a, a yell at First Coast Connect at WJCT.org. I'm Dan Scanlon sitting in for Melissa Ross, and you're listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for the company and make it a very, very positive day, and I'll see you tomorrow. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.